Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. A white-haired gentleman came in the door and said, I heard about this deal at the Minneapolis Club and I want to invest. And I'm sitting there going, I don't see any women, white-haired or otherwise, knocking on the door saying, I heard about this deal and I want to invest. And I knew at the same time that the women were not getting funded. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. In write-ups about Kathy Kinnett, and there are many, she's often credited with starting one of the nation's first angel investment funds for women, focused on women-led startups. That's true, but her Sophia Fund, which she launched in 1998 with a group of women, was actually one of the first angel funds anywhere, not, not just among women. It's mind-boggling to think how much the investor world has changed since Kathy left a very successful corporate career to focus on early-stage investing, helping successful women get in on it and helping women founders get their startups off the ground. She blazed a trail for many who've come after her, and yet it's hard to believe how incremental the progress has been. Today, just a little more than 34% of angel investors are women, and about 23% of angel-funded companies are women-led. There's still a ways to go before we hit gender parity. But that never stopped Kathy from pursuing her passions. I was born in Canada, then I spent six years in Jamaica, and then I moved to Virginia, which is where I did most of my schooling, high school, grade school and high school. So decided there that I wanted to be an engineer because, and I guess this is one interesting point, I wanted to be an engineer because I was actually, my dad was a plant manager and they were modernizing the plant and they, he took me down after dinner one night, he was going down to check on progress and they were discussing a problem, an engineering problem, how to fix this. Mm -hmm. And they let me listen in and it was really an optimization problem. And I fell in love with the concept of optimizing processes. Hmm. And How old were you? I was like a sophomore or a junior in high school. Okay. You know? And I just thought the optimization concept of taking something and optimizing it was just fascinating to me. And that, in many ways, kind of is a turning point in my career mm-hmm. because I became an engineer, but I really believe in optimization, whether it's people places, processes, there are always problems that can be solved. Mm -hmm. And so that is kind of where I started my journey, but went to engineering school and then went to manufacturing for Procter & Gamble, Mm -hmm. um, making uh, food, uh, Duncanized cake mixes, industrial (laughs) shortenings. (laughs) Used to have to taste the shortening every morning to see if it was right. Uh, How do you feel now when you see those uh, mixes on the grocery shelves? 
Uh, bring back good memories? Brings back good memories. I can take a box cake and I can almost tell you what who made it and what, <laughs> and what, wow. what, what flavor it is still. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, but uh, then did that for three years and uh, kind of, again, just an opportunity came up and decided to go back to business school. So went back to business school. With, with a particular goal in mind? Did you see that you needed that to climb to the next level? Maybe in some sense. When I was finished engineering school, I swore I would never set foot in school again. I was done. Mm -hmm. And we should say also, you you went to a couple of pretty good schools. You went to Vanderbilt (laughs) as an undergrad, and then uh, you got that MBA at Harvard. Right. Yeah, I, I, I went to visit a friend at Harvard who said I ought to go there, and I frankly wanted to go see them more than I wanted to go see the school. Really? And I fell in love with the concept of the class. I loved the case method. I loved what they were doing Mm -hmm. and realized um, that it would make a difference. My dad said, why do you need to go to business school? I've learned this. And I said, yeah, you've learned it in 30 years, and I'd like to, in two years, jump the curve a little bit. Mm. So you were, would you, I mean, you were ambitious. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yeah. And I, I wanted to, I'm inquisitive. And I think part of the process of business school taught me to ask questions. And um, that was one of the biggest learnings. It isn't, you know, there's some techniques that you maybe learn. Mm-hmm. But part of it is learning to ask questions, why, and to understand and to analyze issues, problems. When you were a a Harvard student, if I had asked you what you were going to do when you got out, what would you have said? What was the dream? The dream was to be a general manager of a manufacturing entity. Really? So you were still focused on manufacturing? Right. And how did did your your fellow classmates feel about that? Was that common? No, that was unusual. I mean, part of the issue of uh, the class is they build, the class is built around diversity. Mm-hmm. So it's built around people bringing different skills in, and therefore you get lots of different perspectives. And there, you know, you have other people who want to go into manufacturing or operations. I, I really was on a general management track. I didn't want to specifically deepen my operations experience, but I wanted to learn sales and marketing. I, at, at Procter and Gamble, it was very siloed. If you were in manufacturing, you were in manufacturing mm. till. You got very, very high. Mm-hmm. And this allowed me at an early level. And so I interviewed a lot in the paper industry because uh, corrugated packaging com- in- entities, you become a general manager at an early level. Mm-hmm. A plant is a, uh, a business in and of itself. So it has usually its own sales and marketing team. And so I ended up uh, working for Boise Cascade out of school. Okay. First in Boise and then was transferred to Houston into an acquisition. But you know, one of the interesting things that happened to me in Boise that kind of, again, at, my career has had lots of changes and things that I wouldn't have expected at the time. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happened in Boise is an executive asked me to go over and do an analysis of a startup business for him mm. on, on the side. Mm-hmm. You know, he paid me personally. And I went over to this basement under a dental office to meet these guys who were building a new company, which became Micron Technology. Okay. They were uh, chip engineers, and they were doing uh, the industry. Then was like eight, eight. Uh, what's it? 
8K DRAM chips, and they wanted to do 64K. <laughs> I did the analysis, and I said, this is terrible. You do not want to put your money into this company. Really? Yeah. Said, you know, these guys, yeah, they're smart guys, but who knows whether they need 64K DRAMs, you know. <laughs> you know, and they're in this, under this basement, you know, don't do it. Mm-hmm. So what year, what, approximately what year was that? 79.80. Okay. And uh, Micron, I mean, Micron has had its ups and downs, but five years later, Micron was the dream company. Yeah. And I, so, so did that kind of haunt you for a while? It did. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn from that experience, though? Well, I, it, it was my first exposure to startups. Mm-hmm. Um, and I probably did more of a classic existing business analysis mm. and not necessarily thinking and focusing as much on the opportunity. Mm-hmm. To me, uh, everybody was doing 8K. Why would you need 64K? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really understand that opportunity and the risk assessment, probably. Sure. And and your, and in fairness, I mean, your whole career had been with large established companies to that point. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I, I didn't even understand the world of startups. So, yeah. So. so did that start to give you the, the itch or the curiosity? What was your next experience with startups or entrepreneurship? Um, actually, I didn't think at the time it gave me the itch. I got transferred to Houston. Um, worked in Houston, just realized I, I actually was a controller, which is far away from my background. Uh-huh. Um, and I just decided I wanted to leave. Hmm. And so I ended up going to move to California to the Bay Area Okay, to work for the, the, an executive at Boise had a, had, a, had a real estate development business. And he said, come and run my real estate development business. And we'll look at startups on the side. So you were in Palo Alto. You were in Silicon Valley in like the early. This was like early early eighties. Steve Jobs was in his garage, exactly, and thing, exactly. things were just beginning to happen. How did it feel? Did you love that energy? Yes, I did. I loved the energy. I would go to, and I'm forgetting the name now of the coffee shop that everybody used to meet in, and I would have some business meetings there. Mm-hmm. But again, I I think it, it was. An undercurrent that was there for me, but I didn't recognize it at the time. I was probably still bigger company oriented. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up uh, going back east from there when the things kind of shut down. Mm-hmm. And uh, long story short, I ended up going to work for an entrepreneur. Again, this is all chance. Yeah. I found a guy who he had created the, uh, in computer rooms, there's a raised floor to cool large computers. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, that didn't exist. In the 60s, IBM used window air conditioning units to cool hmm. computer rooms. Mm-hmm. Window air conditioning units are optimized for people, so they take care of both heat and humidity. Machines don't generate humidity. Once you stabilize the humidity... You don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. So he went to IBM. He was a, a German who had escaped the Nazis in the 30s, gone to school in the U.S., engineering school, went back and fought in the war for the U.S., and he came over. Anyway, he goes to IBM in the 60s and said, you don't have the right machine 
cool your room. And with them created the whole raised floor industry. Hmm. So by the time I came along, his sales were $30 million. He'd grown the company. He now had a competitor. He had a second product line, and he hired me to run the second product line. Then we got acquired by a private equity firm mm. who, um, even in that process, uh, they had a very different culture mm-hmm. than he did. And a number of ethical issues arose. I was outright asked for a bribe to uh, sell to certain entities. Okay. How did that feel? That was difficult. Yeah. The bribe was actually asked for in a taxi, and my manufacturer's rep kept saying to the taxi driver, keep driving, keep driving. (laughs) Three months later, I have this message on my machine. This is 3M calling, and you applied for a job. Ah. And I'm like, mm, don't think so. I <laughs> uh, don't know, but I only sent out one resume, so mm-hmm. called him back. And long story short, that brought me to Minnesota in 1984. It was a new business role, so I worked with the sector labs building new businesses. I was there for eight years, did. Well, I actually moved into, had a short time, moved into an actual business unit, but I was in the new products area most of the time. Mm-hmm responsible for five or six, the sales and marketing for five or six new businesses, uh, and started up a couple with partners overseas. So I had chance to do business in Japan and in Europe and to actually negotiate uh, deals with outside partners. So learned about negotiating deals. Hmm. And that was a good experience. But by 92, I was like, I don't aspire to leadership at 3M. Really? Why? Um, the kinds of decisions uh, that were that most of the executives were involved in, to me, were um, not as strategic as I would have liked. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it was like very, very simple things around issues that I didn't think were important. Sure big company and the higher you get, the further away you get from the work that inspired you to be right, there. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so uh, an opportunity came along to run a uh, just under $10 million business here in town. And half, I was to b- run the business half time. And the other half was to go build it by making acquisitions all over the country. Mm, what kind of business? Uh, it was in the building services industry. It was a um, garage door and fireplace installation businesses. So we were buying businesses that were installers of construction products around the country. Mm -hmm. So I loved running the company and growing it locally. I spent half time um, out doing acquisitions, had three lined up, ready to sign. I stayed there about 18 months. Again, had a I would say, ethical conflict Mm. with the way things were being done. Mm -hmm. And so, which specifically weren't as much about me as it was about the business and how employees were being managed and the expectations Hmm. that they had of me. And so I left and decided to go um, buy a business. Really? Buy a manufacturing business here in which I had been sort of dreaming of even that's part of the reason I made the move to the building 
services business. Okay. And did that for a couple of years, looked at lots of deals. What the issue, and and this is probably important from a, a perspective going forward, um, actually got fascinated by the the equipment that supports airplanes. So like the tow bars and the luggage carts and the tractors that move the train. Okay. Very fragmented business with lots of different players. Hmm. And there were some opportunities where those were turning over, generational turnover kinds of things. And I had people who were willing to back me. Once I put the deal together, then I would go and say, you know, they would back me. And what happened in the mid-90s was two things. Financial funds started developing. So people who were looking to buy companies already could just write the check. Mm-hmm. I had to approve the deal and then get the check. And so there, were, so there were funds that were looking to do these deals, number one. When you bought the company, I mean, was it all you? Was it, did you? Well, well, I would have investors supporting me. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't write the check to yeah. buy the company. I had investors. Well, I mean, I, hey, you'd been an executive for a long time. I don't know. <laughs> not, not, not at that level. Okay. <laughs> and so, so I actually put one deal together, and I took one of the investors, a well-known investor here in town, went with me to um, Kansas City to look at the deal. Mm-hmm. I had scrubbed the deal. I'd talked to the guy, make sure he's willing to sell. When this investor walked in, male, younger than I was, he started talking to him. Mm. He started ignoring me, and he started walking away from the deal. So I had seen the female issue before, but never quite as blatantly as that. Mm-hmm. And that, coupled with the way funding was going in, in town, not only the funds, but again, being a female, I was realizing how hard it was as a female to get funding to do things. So that was the turning point. That was was the critical turning point. When we get back, Kathy makes the leap into full-time angel investing. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank providing a means to a dream. Frustrated that successful professionals like herself were being left out of investment deals, Kathy decides to start a fund of her own. Here's how she did it. I started helping people, male, usually male technical people, raise money for their companies. So mm-hmm. I knew the angels, mm-hmm. and I'd go do the introduction, etc. And this was continuing, and then about 97, 98... I was helping one of these companies, and a white-haired gentleman came in the door and said, I heard about this deal at the Minneapolis Club, and I want to invest. And I'm sitting there going, I don't see any women, white-haired or otherwise, knocking on the door, saying, I heard about this deal. 
and I want to invest. And I knew at the same time that the women were not getting funded. Mm -hmm. Partly mine was a little different situation because mine wasn't a startup, Mm -hmm. but I knew women weren't getting funded. So we put together a group of women who were interested in investing in women-led companies. And this is a side deal. It's basically been a side deal the whole, whole way. Hmm. Uh, we put together, we'd have an event, we'd have 25 women come and look at deals. And who, where were these women coming from? Were they, ex- were they executives at big companies or where, what were they doing? No, uh, no, they were, pe- first of all, it had be- they were people we knew, mm-hmm. okay, Generally, they were not executives at big companies because uh, executives at big companies didn't have time. Mm. They were on the road. They were doing things. So more often, it would be lawyers, bankers, service providers. Okay. Who were interested in in investing. Right. Dorothy Dolphin was one of the early women who, who participated in the group. So. You know, she had obviously her own business and was successful at that point was very successful. So we did that from about 98 till 2005. We didn't keep records. We think about five or 10 deals got funded. Did it have the name? Did you have, was it called? It it was not called Sophia. We called it, we called it Women to Women. Okay. And if you, if you, we'd present a company and two women would say, I like, I want to invest in that. We'd say, okay, you two go work together. And, mm. and do a deal. And like I said, so that's why we don't know how many were funded uh, other than anecdotally. Can you recall one of your really early successes from those days, something that you invested in that turned I'm out not, to be? I'm not sure there was a success. Really? Okay. And that was, that was part of the issue because actually part of the problem was the women didn't know how deals worked. Hmm. So what we realized by about 2005 was that we needed to come together as a group to help each other do a deal. Because, uh, and, and at that form time, we, and it, it, we were in the process of changing the name, and we, we named it Sophia after the Greek goddess of wisdom because we wanted to bring not only our money but our knowledge and resources. Mm-hmm. When you say we, who are you referring to? Did you have partners? At that point, uh, Joy Lindsay and I pr- drove the formation of the fund, the, that first fund. And we formed the fund. It was a democracy of 30 women. Okay. The, and we, I looked everyone in the eye and said, you will work, <laughs> you, you know, yeah. which again meant we couldn't have corporate executives. We ha- it was a quiet race, so we had to know that they were accredited investors, and they all committed to work. And so the idea was that we would, and we raised a million dollars. The idea was that we all worked together. Uh, we rotated through screening committee. We would have everybody get together for a deal. We would vote on who, what we wanted to invest in. Mm-hmm. How did how did founders even know to come to you? Well, then we started doing more PR and talking about women to women we had talked about. So we were starting to get some deal flow. And by the time we put the fund together, we got more deal flow. And we, we used the Rainsource Capital model, which was a, a group at that time. 
We were the 13th. They had been pretty much more in the outstate. We were the 13th fund under Rainsource and were the first in the really in the metro area. Hmm. All of the women, not all of the women knew each other. Many did. There were common threads so that we all knew each other. And again, the idea was we had education to understand deal terms and people would know more about it. And mm-hmm. some people would say, you know, I can help more on sales and marketing, or I'm good on the HR side, or I know this industry. Very few stepped up and said, I know deals or mm. deal terms. You probably had the most experience with uh, that. Jo- Joy probably had. Joy and I had the most experience okay. on that. So, And you were all in. You were doing this full time at this point? You had, or were you, did you still have other ideas? Well, I just no income from it. I was doing yeah. a lot of it. Um, and Joy did. We, we all did. I had consulting at, at the time on the other okay. on the side that I was doing as well, which paid some of the bills. I'm curious how male investors reacted to this formation of a group of women. I mean, was there any other women-run fund at that point in the late 90s in Minnesota? Okay. I'm going to take that question apart a little bit. Okay. So in the late 90s, there weren't many funds in the country. Sure. If you look at the case at Harvard Business School of written cases, we even pre- preceded some of the big Boston funds hmm. that, that got together. But we were, we were kind of a loose network. We were one of the earliest funds in two, when we raised the fund in 2005-06. We were probably one of the first women-led funds. There's others that claim <laughs> earlier, but mm-hmm. not good. You know, we're in Minnesota. We don't. Always get the visibility (laughs) from some of the others. Yeah. But I wouldn't say we got pushback. We got questions from people like, why why women? You're walking away from good deals. And our answer was, no, we're not walking away. I mean, yes, in some sense, we're walking away from potential good deals with men, but there are lots of good deals with women. Because it wasn't just that there were women running this fund. You were only interested in funding women founders. Women-led deals. And that's an interesting distinction that's come out over time because now some people talk about women-owned companies. Our definition of women-led and always has been is women on the management team in key roles with significant equity. Mm. Okay. Obviously, as you take on more investors, women don't, it, the entrepreneurs typically don't have the majority stake after several rounds. Mm-hmm. They typically do ask for. But I mean, just to demonstrate, when that first fund, we've returned over two times the original money. We've probably still, we have some money still to come in. Hmm. We lost some deals, but Frankly, two local women-led companies helped really make that return with returns over seven times cash. I mean, it's high-risk investing, so it's those high-return deals that make up for the losses mm-hmm. that we had. Yep. So I think... What were the early successes? Can you name a couple companies? Probably not a good idea. To, I, I will just tell you one that, that's recent that people do know about is uh, Rebiotics and Lee Jones. Mm. was one of our early investments. So, okay. Yeah. 
in in those early days, were there even enough companies to consider? Were, were there a lot of women starting things that were ready for funding? Uh, yes, in those early, yes. I mean, we probably, we met, uh, let me, I'm trying to remember back. We met quarterly and we would usually have screened out and had at least two deals to present every quarter. Mm-hmm. We probably looked at, oh, I would say 50 deals a year. I, I am look back at that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, in some ways it was it was easier because the comp- the women were if you found a woman led deal, they really often had their act together, hmm. so to speak. Mm-hmm. Now there are tons of deals out there, but there are people who don't understand funding. There are lots of entrepreneurs. There are lots of women-led deals. In fact, there are more women entrepreneurs than there are men. Not all deals should be funded. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of good companies that are women-led that can bootstrap and should bootstrap, and that fits their strategy. Yeah. Investing, when you're looking at an investor, we're looking at really rapidly growing opportunities in big markets that People want, will sell their business in three to five years. Not everybody wants to sell in three to five years. Investor money, even taking a small ownership presenting a, a portion of the company, is the most expensive money on the market. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it needs the kind of financing you need is dependent on your strategy. So as part of your strategy and you're figuring out your go-to-market, you're figuring out your product and product features, you also have to be thinking about where you want the company to go in terms of an exit and what, uh, how you're going to finance that. With COVID, we, have, we are swamped with blind applications. I mean, they just come in. From all around the country or mostly from the Midwest? All over the world. Really? All over the world. I mean, I must get 30 to 50 a week. Do you look at them all? No. I mean, <laughs> if it's out of the country, done, because mm-hmm. we don't do out of the country. Mm-hmm. Next, I kind of look and see if it's women-led. Then I kind of look and see if it's a service business. If, they, if it's clear it's just a um, mass email, it probably gets no response. Mm-hmm. I participate in a monthly call with other groups around the country. The last several calls have been, we don't even look at deals unless we get a warm introduction hmm. because people are just, and it, it's, it's like they sat down on a coffee shop and wrote out a few notes and then they send it out and want people to fund it. People think there's money out there. The, the fact that the economy is slowing and people are cutting back and rounds or valuations are going down. Some people are slow to catch on, mm-hmm. and so we're still getting lots of just bizarre applications. <laughs> and I, I mean, it doesn't, it's not really encouraging in my mind. They are not even reading our website on what, hmm. like we say, first thing is women-led. I get tons from guys. We don't do anything but B2B. Yeah. Uh, we get so many B2C, and it's like we don't. Because we don't do B2C because we're not consumer marketers. 
And we want to add value, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. We want to add value through our network and our resources. And anything that's driven by consumer marketing is not our... We have the current fund, which is our second fund. We we talked about the first fund. Mm -hmm. We're on our second fund, which is a $5.5 million fund. We don't have consumer marketing resources and expertise that we bring to companies. So we say... Not that yours, you may have a great deal, but it's not something that we can leverage. Sure. I guess one point I want to make about Sophia 2 versus Sophia 1, we talked about, we changed the model when we went to Sophia 2, and I think this is important. We, when we went out to raise Sophia 2, we decided we could, we would raise from men if they wanted to invest. Mm-hmm. Because we changed the model to have four partners do all of the decision-making. Mm. We could write checks faster. We could move. So it's no longer the 30 women. It's no longer the 30, okay? okay? So we had to reach out to accredited investors, and we wanted a larger fund, so we needed more investors. The requirement at that time was a maximum of 100 investors. So we reached out to women, well, we decided we'd take men, money from men, but we would only what we would solicit women mm-hmm. because we knew women weren't getting asked to participate in this asset class. Mm-hmm. So, and because we weren't asking them to work, we could now go to the C-suite of mm. of mid and large cap companies because sure. they didn't have to work. Yep. Again, we had to know them. We reached out to people. Eighty-five percent of the women we talked to wanted to invest in this asset class, but did not know how to get in. Hmm. And that was as late as 2015. And these are very accomplished women who have the money to invest. Who have financial advisors who were, I mean, most of them have financial wealth advisors, which in fairness, legally wealth advisors can't advise people to invest in our fund. Okay. Because we're not regulated. Sure. So. I understand that they can't do that, but a lot of them will say, why don't you go explore mm-hmm. this asset class? Maybe you need some investments in this asset class. They can't officially say, yes, Sophia's a good one to invest in. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so 85%, and we, had, we gave out PPMs. Every PPMs? Private placement memorandums, which explain the investment. Mm-hmm. We gave those to those who we met with who asked. All but one person that we have presented to ask. And of those who got PPM, 60% signed up, hmm. over 60%, which is usually it's like four to 10. Yeah, that's a yeah. great accomplishment. So, and we, we think the accomplishment is, is that we brought new women into this asset class. Yeah. So not only do we are we proud of of helping women entrepreneurs, we're proud of being able to bring new people. I mean, one woman actually was in our first fund. Well, she she gave me a, a commitment to fund two, and she wrote the check. There were two closings, and she said, "I'll give you this much, and when you go for the second close, call me, and I'll probably double down." Hmm. So I called her up, and I said, "You know." Uh, we're ready to close, uh, ready to double down. And she goes, oh, Kathy, I'm not going to do it. And I was like, ooh, why? And she said, 
Well, we've gotten so involved in this, we're off doing it on our own, and we have multiple other wow. investments, and, yeah. we, and we need to keep the diversity. Interesting. I didn't take that as a negative. I was like... Yeah. Well, I, and I'm curious, you know, I, I think of you often as new funds come on the market, and this one is all about investing, you know, founders of color or, or women, and they're just, there's like this whole new generation. Does that make you feel good? Does yes. it? I mean, how how do you how do you feel? And is it more is it more difficult for Sophia Fund to to get the investors? You've got more competition now. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think I I feel yes and no regarding getting investors. I yes, I think it's great that there are more funds uh, that are invested in. A variety of different segments, whether it's BIPOC or or gender based, we have uh, we have uh, women and BIPOC women who are founders of our company. So we 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 cover both. Um, but in terms of investors, I think there's it's an interesting world because I think the investment world is in great turmoil right now. It I'm frankly I'm a little concerned about it. How so? Particularly, and I'm talking about new investors. Everybody has seen the success of the last couple of years. Yeah. And everybody's kind of excited. Let's, oh, I went in, I went in. Yeah. Okay. And even some of the crowdfunding, we invest with accredited investors who have, it's, it's essentially the SEC says you have enough that if you get burned, you're okay yeah. and supposedly you're financially sophisticated enough to be able to make these decisions. Some of the things that have happened with crowdfunding equity, there's some limitations, but some people are um, following the hype. There's a lot of hype in the market. And so, okay, Joe invested. Joe's a good guy. I'm going to invest because Joe invested. People are gonna, who are following that are going to take some hits. And they might be hits that are difficult to absorb. Mm -hmm. And I worry about what that's going to do to their to the to the economy. That's number one. Number two, the other thing that has happened in the last few years is in uh, what people read about the big unicorns and the big deals. Yeah. In the last several years, there are three categories of investors that have come into the market, late-stage and venture deals, hedge funds, mm -hmm. family offices, and even people like Fidelity and Vanguard have set up funds to invest in startups. Mm -hmm. If you look at the exits in, I believe it was 2020, 75% of the exits involved these three categories. 95% of the dollars went to them. Wow. We inv we're in the five percent. Yeah, we we invest at the very beginning when the, the early risk stage. is really the risk is high. Mm -hmm. So it looks like people are getting are being very successful. Now that's the part of the bubble that has burst right now. Those categories are pulling out of investing, and the high valuations at late stages are going down. Mm -hmm. That's where the correction is. So I'm hoping the correction will not hurt some of the early stage high risk investors 
Mm-hmm. But uh, but even some of the entrepreneurs who are trying to raise money are still operating on that model. Hmm. They're not really aware of it. And again, it's some of it. Some some entrepreneurs need it as part of their plan. But there are a lot of companies out there that hear the hype and say, "Okay, I should go get this money." They need to step back and look that they could really bootstrap and do a lot of good and have a very good business and make a very good income. Mm-hmm. And the positive thing that's happening in this state right now, I'm pleased with what DEED is doing and, and Launch Minnesota and some of those programs. In what way? Because they're helping some of these entrepreneurs. They aren't necessarily the entrepreneurs that would get funding, but it is helping our economy. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're doing grants, they're doing loans, they're educating people. They've got some programs to even help understand about investors and what investors are looking for and mm-hmm. whether you really should be going that path. So I'm really positive about that, those programs and what's happening. You actually joined us um, at, at Twin Cities Business for an event we had uh, just before the holidays talking about investing in Minnesota and is our state doing enough to support entrepreneurs, especially when you look at programs that some of the surrounding states have and compare our angel tax credit, and which has not been approved for 2023 yet and all that. I'm, I'm curious where you say you certainly you, you could have been up on the podium when I saw you in the audience. I was like, oh, my gosh. So, so what's your take? Well, I guess, yes, we are not doing what some other states have done. Other state, I, I'm not in a position to say or feel comfortable saying that our programs are not as good as theirs. There's always room for improvement. Mm-hmm. I think the angel tax credit is something that we should seriously consider. It did make a difference with people choosing to invest in our fund because they knew they could get the angel tax credit. Mm-hmm. It has brought in like. of the people who've taken the angel tax credit are from out of of the state. I I think that's the right number. But the bottom line is it's brought money in that wouldn't be in this state Mm -hmm. to invest. So I think that's one of the things that I would like to see. But they, I mean, we got 98 million just committed to the state for, that's a, seven-year plan, I think, it comes in various tranches. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what was good about that is Deed sat down with various different groups. Uh, I've been involved in at least two or three different discussions since early in the year before they put in their proposal on what to ask for. They met with people, investors, entrepreneurs around the state to say, here, what is it that we should be asking for? And based on that and based on analyzing what other states were doing went out and made the ask. And I, like I said, I think, th- I think they did their homework. Yeah. Like some people will say they could have done better with this. Or, mm-hmm. I, I'm not at that level that I'd say, no, you, you blew it. I, $98 million is nice to support. Yeah. Not, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are there certain sectors that you're most interested in right now? Where are you at with Fund2? We've invested in 13 companies. We have uh, had three exits so far. We have a couple more deals to do, uh, or several more deals to do. 
sectors, we don't really look at sectors. We, we like IT, health and wellness. One, a couple of the recent deals that we've had, I, being an engineer, <laughs> I call them process improvement. So one of the deals we had and have exited was a, a platform that assisted in surgery. Hmm. So it used to be that salespeople were in the sometimes in the surgical suite advising how to use this device or how to use this knee uh, put in this artificial mm-hmm, knee, mm-hmm. and of course people didn't like that. But again, they bring good expertise. This company made that virtual. It not only helped the companies so they don't have to have people go all over the country to suites so they can sit and they can advise as appropriate. Mm -hmm. And that company, that's a process improvement. We have another one that is working on process improvement in storm sewers. Hmm. The flow of sewers and wastewater and flooding is problematic, and most of it is done manually. Mm -hmm. Jersey City has 147 days of rain a year. Every time it rains, they send people down to check the grates in the sewers. Hmm. So it doesn't have to be sexy. It doesn't. Have, in <laughs> fact, in fact, I would argue that's the greatest opportunity for us. That we don't necessarily look for the unicorns. We look for these almost niche. They mm-hmm. aren't quite niche because they're big opportunities, but they're unique opportunities that maybe fly under the radar. Who's mm-hmm. going to be looking at fixing storm sewers? Yeah. What is your best advice for founders who are reaching out? Besides, obviously, reading the Rebs website, knowing <laughs> the parameters of Sophia Fund, um, doing your homework and knowing that you're really in need of, of raising capital. What's your best advice? What are, what are the pitches that stand out? Um, I think first is the team. We look for a team that and usually a, a team, I mean more than one. Some people come with just one. We're looking for a team because we like that diversity of thought. And we're lo- looking for coachability because we're investing in an early stage when there are lots of things that could come up. And we want to know that they're open to looking at new opportunities or new perspectives. Mm-hmm. We like one who's kind of thought through the whole, at least in general, how they will get to an exit. And because it's very important from the beginning to when you're dealing with investors to create value that will lead to an exit. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people are so caught up on their mission. I want to eliminate breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a great mission. But is somebody going to buy a company? If they achieve that mission, great, they probably will get bought. But along the way, what is the value they're creating? Is it a product? Is it a process? Mm-hmm. Is it, um, a, I don't know, a gene? Yeah. A what, whatever. But the point is, 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 is it something that someone would value to buy? Hmm. And sometimes people, I just had an entrepreneur write me and she said, I wish I had thought five years ago about creating the value. Hmm. I was just trying to prove that my product worked and that it would get de- deep. I didn't think about the value as it related to bringing money into the company. That's a great insight. 
When you think about uh, the early days, those early meetings, bringing women together back in 1998, would you have ever imagined that that this would become the thing you're known for? That you that you would be kind of the you know the the queen of of, of the investment community here in in the Twin Cities and beyond. No, I absolutely wouldn't have thought of it. In fact, I laugh because my my college friends. <laughs> uh, the guys used to kid me and call me Kathy Token Canette <laughs> that I was going to get a job, you know, just as a token. Uh huh. And you know, I was serious that I wanted to be um, this manufacturing engineer. I yeah. was thought I was going to prove it on my uh, my technical skills, and they would they they're shocked to know that I would be supporting women-led business. They were sure I was just going to try and change the world and, you know, and to turn around and be supporting women-led businesses and helping fund them and helping grow would be just, yeah, it's 180 degrees. Well, you are changing the world. Uh, we hope so. It's, it's, it's a group of us, but we hope we're making progress. Did you expect the progress to be as slow going as it's been? No, I don't think that. I will. I do have to add a caution here. I'm quite concerned about what's happening in our economy mm -hmm. because I see people tightening the belt and some people who have supported alternative investments, whether it's BIPOC or women, et cetera, and supposedly did this because they were good investments, are now changing their stripes a little bit. Hmm. And I see, uh, I see potentially these businesses and their people being removed. Hmm. And I, I worry that um, people who don't fit the traditional mode are going to take a bigger hit as people, instead of looking at what they bring to the business or what the opportunity is, yes, you sometimes you have to tighten the the reins a little bit, but you need to look past gender and color and other reasons on why you do that instead of just making assumption they don't have the experience or the knowledge to right. do what needs to be done. Right. I think we have to get over this idea that that's an alternative investment. Right. Will it happen? Will we get there? We hope so. <laughs> you have to keep pushing forward and keep hoping for it. Keep pushing forward. Kathy Kinnett, thank you so much. So, so much to take away from, from talking to you. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. This has been fun. So much to learn from Kathy Kinnett. She is just a true trailblazer, and we're so lucky to, to have her on the show and have her in the community. Well, for some more perspective on investing, on women in investing, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Mary Schmidt-Doherty is a finance professor with the Opus College of Business. Mary, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I know you are familiar with Kathy and you have been aware of her and her career in the Sophia Fund for a while. What's what's your take on what she's done? You're absolutely correct. I've known and admired Kathy for years. What I thought was interesting is is she's a trailblazer. She didn't describe herself that way. 
But when you think about it, engineering and then going on to the Harvard Business School, those were male bastions back then. Yeah. She's been just a terrific role model for women and and she's championed a lot of women over the years. So um, it's been great. She was really ahead of her time in all ways. She definitely was ahead of her time. And she's absolutely correct. Unfortunately, women are still underrepresented in the deal making. And when you're thinking deal making, think about investment banking, private equity, but also we're underrepresented on the public market side. Women have made many gains with as financial advisors, and yet there's fewer and fewer women that are entering investment research roles, like an analyst role, portfolio manager role. These are the roles where the investment decisions are made. Hmm. Why is that? Why are you seeing fewer women go into those roles? Uh, it is absolutely frustrating. It isn't for lack of trying. We have a number of women that have in the Twin Cities and, and across the country, of course, that have been trying to fight this battle. I think there's a couple of reasons that I, I get from talking to young women that are thinking about this field. Face it, the Wall Street reputation isn't appealing. Mm-hmm. Bad behavior hasn't helped. If you were to go and Google Jeffrey Epstein, for yeah. example, the, yeah. they, they actually put down sex offender and financier. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Do those two descriptions go together? So this reputation also is perpetuated in Hollywood. Think of, you know, movies that we've all seen, The Big Short, The Wolf. There's many. Sure. Bernie Madoff, his story is now a Netflix series. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I have kind of as an anecdote, I have I've been teaching for decades at St. Thomas in the finance area. I have young men that reach out to me. I mean, they're barely on campus. They're freshmen asking how to get into investment banking. I have never had a female freshman reach out with that question. Really? So what does that tell you? I mean, is it is it a matter of trying to change the is it is it is the onus on investment banking to make themselves more appealing to women? Or do you try to do more to explain to women why this is a a valuable path? All of those things and more. I'll say uh, this local CFA society, I've worked with Carol Schleff, Kate Lyons. They're both at BMO. Beth Lilly, she's the CIO at Polet. We have been for years trying to stem the tide. But I find that what's really interesting to me is these firms will call me and they'll say, send me your best women. And I'll say, well, the one she's already taken because they don't, the women opt out early. So what we've, what the investment banks have figured out and so have all of us is we need to speak to these women earlier than traditional. So if you were to look uh, like right now in the recruitment process, I, I, Harris Williams, Jeffries, Piper Sandler, they're all putting out days that are just for women, like symposiums for the day to come in and see about what this is all about. And they're offering it to sophomores. Mm. And even like the title, the Jeffries title is called Inspiring Women for Finance. And frankly, that's what we have to do because yeah. they're when they come up through finance, we do have some women finance majors, but they almost all opt to go into the corporate side. And and we just have to fight the tide. Right. And of course, that's where Kathy started. And it was a long winding road until she got to the world of investing. 
And that's so interesting that you say that because I think that's one of the other problems. When listening to Kathy's story and then and looking at the story of the many women in my generation that have, um, let's call it, succeeded in this, in this field, it's been a varied path for everyone. And I don't know, young women, they just are planners. So these women that come into my office, they want to know what job leads to which you know, promotion, which leads to which promotion. And they're so incredibly organized, way too young. Hmm. And I say to them, you know, I can guarantee you're going to have a great job. You're going to like that. You're going to learn a lot. Then you're going to have another great job. And eventually you're going to have a very fascinating, well-paid career. Mm -hmm. I just can't tell you that you're going to start here. Then you're going to move there because it won't happen like that. And yet you're going to be amazed at the opportunities you have. Right. They want it all planned out right now. They don't. Yeah, they don't like my answer. (laughs) They just say, well, in accounting, I can do this, then I'll do that, then I'll do that. And then I have plenty of finance women that also do actuary science. Same thing. I go from this test to this test. I get promoted this way. And I am like, stop it. Your opportunities are so much better elsewhere. You're so talented. Yeah. Well, Thank you for the work that you're doing and the awareness you're being, bringing to the field. And it's because of people like you and Kathy that, that more women are inspired. And hopefully we'll, we'll see the numbers increase. Just not soon enough. There is hope. Yeah. We're all working on it together. But there's just some wonderful opportunities out there for young women in the investment area. Good to know. Mary Schmidt-Doherty, thank you so much for your perspective and for talking with us. We really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to By All Means. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas opus college of business and schultz school of entrepreneurship especially associate dean laura dunham for all their support our theme music is by song finch thank you for listening to by all means <laughs>